Welcome to episode 51 of On The Ledge podcast. This intro may sound a little different this morning because I'm coming at you from my potting shed. Oh, hang on, a pigeon's just landed on the roof. Don't eat my brassicas, pigeon. Go on, off you go, pigeon. Go on. It's gone. Episode 51 should be a doozy. I've got an interview with gardening royalty this week. Yes, that's Matthew Biggs, author of many a fine gardening book and regular on BBC Radio 4 Institution Gardener's Question Time. The reason I'm speaking to Matt is that we'll soon be appearing on stage together at Gardener's World Live on Thursday the 14th of June. I do hope you've got your tickets, but if not, listen on and I'll explain more about what you can come and see. I'll also be answering a question about orchid leaves and giving you a mini on the ledge sew along update. In fact, let's do the sew along update now. I wanted to tell you about my coleus and I'm so proud of these plants. I'll put some pictures up in my show notes, but they're growing so well. They're about a foot tall now, just under a foot tall, and they're just so beautiful and they've been so easy to grow. I would really recommend you trying some of these coleus if you get the opportunity. I've got one still out here in the potting shed. The rest are, some are in the garden in pots. And I've also put my Begonia Luxurians that I was talking to Alice Fowler about outside. And you know what? It's suddenly starting to perk up and look amazing. So there you go. That's all it needed was to go outside. So my coleus have done really well this year. It's a beautiful foliage plant, super easy and super cheap to grow from seed. I would highly recommend you giving this a try. And in fact, it's probably not too late to sow some seed now if you're in the northern hemisphere you can get on and do it and you can have plants that will last right through to the first frost if they're outside if you bring them inside you can take cuttings I can't remember if I've mentioned this in the past but there is also a technique I heard about where somebody literally just took cuttings of their coleus in the autumn and used water propagation kept them in that jar of water all winter time long and then potted them up in the spring so I'm going to try and keep the best of my coleus alive through the winter. I've basically treated them a bit like tomato plants. I've potted them on regularly and I've fed them vigorously and that seems to have done the trick so I'm really happy about that. On the half dead houseplants front I'm just moving forward to have a look at these. I posted a picture ages ago of my drosera and showed how miserable it was looking but it's come outside to the potting shed and it's getting a lot more sun out here now and it's absolutely doing beautifully in fact I've divided it I've taken out one no two plants from the big clump and they're doing so well now and we had fun last week I brought one into the kitchen to catch some flies that were in the kitchen and it duly did so and we had great fun watching the leaves curl around its prey and that was great fun for my son so this is why carnivorous plants are great if you've got children they are massively entertaining 
my carnivorous plants, I've got a sundew and I've got uh, a selection of Venus flytraps are doing really well at the minute. I can feel that my carnivorous plant obsession is beginning to burgeon, so there might be some more adding to the collection soon. My pinguicula has been really unhappy. I let it get sunburnt. Silly person that I am, but it's recovering really well, so that's good. And moving any plant, as we've said before, outside into very bright light after being inside for the winter is a silly mistake. I've learnt my lesson now and I've been putting things under fleece in the shed if they've been coming outside, then gradually moving that off as time goes by, which allows them to adapt. So that's a little update from my potting shed, but now it's time to talk to Matthew Biggs and we cover everything from his favourite houseplants to working with the legendary Roy Lancaster to what we're going to be getting up to at Gardener's World Live. I hope you enjoy the interview and I'll see you halfway through for a Q&A. Yeah, hello. My, my name's Matthew Biggs. I'm a gardening writer and broadcaster, and I love it. It's it's so nice to meet a fellow enthusiast. I'm looking out onto my garden. Chelsea, it ain't, but uh, it's a wonderful hobby. And I have to say, Matthew, that some of your books were early inspirations for me in terms of that's, getting... That's terribly kind. <laughs> well, I've got your complete book of vegetables. I'm just looking... I was looking on my bookshelf to see which ones I've got. Um, some of those classic books which really inspired me to think about vegetables in a wider sense than the usual suspects and got me into thinking about more unusual vegetables and trying new things. At a time Time when probably that was quite cutting edge but I also noted I also did a did a bit a bit more research and I didn't realize that you'd written a book with Roy Lancaster about houseplants called what houseplant where I've just ordered it now to, to get a secondhand copy because I'm really keen to see this book May, may I be rude and ask how much you paid for it? Because I suspect not a lot these, these days. Oh, I don't know. It wasn't very much, but I'm really looking forward to reading it because there aren't many good houseplant books out there. And this is by you and Roy Lancaster, who is another hero of mine. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that book when I get it. Um, t you've written a lot of books over the years, uh, but that one, how did that one come about? Well, it came about, uh, Roy and I had travelled quite a lot. Uh, we led gardening cruises. I mean, Roy's obviously travelled further afield, but we ended up going to the Caribbean and visiting the tropics. Uh, and Roy had written a series of uh, what plant wears, um, and he'd done uh, perennials and uh, trees and shrubs, and he was asked to do houseplants. And he very kindly asked whether I would like to do that too. Uh, and it's quite funny, I suppose, in a way, because there's lots of excitement about houseplants at the moment, which is absolutely great. But uh, Roy and I and uh, several, several of my colleagues these days, we're of a vintage where we, we remember almost like, and well, it wouldn't have been the first time, but another time round uh, when houseplants came to the fore. And it's fascinating how things are cyclical. And I'm absolutely delighted that people are rediscovering them again because it uh, it makes a world of difference to your living environment uh, and also it makes people realize that you don't have to have a garden to garden and I think that's really important because if you tend your house plants you know you get all of the benefits that go with it so Roy was asked to, to uh, write this tropical plant uh, book so we sort of got our heads together and um, and, and came up with 
something, you know, a, a book for a typical Dorling Kindersley book, sort of picture-led, concise information, and still beautifully laid out. In fact, I did wonder uh, whether we should ask them whether need to, re- you know, needed to revise and reissue it. Definitely, I think it would do really well, and it is. I it is that that what plant wear idea is so key, isn't it? And it applies to house plants just as much as to garden plants. In that, if if you're growing house plants and you're bringing them into your house, if you've got just half an idea of where they need to go, then you're going to have a gr- greater chance of success than just plonking them on the nearest shelf, whatever they may be. Well, there's two two people who are really great too, who who I've met at growing house plants. Of course, one's Anne Swithinbank, who's you know is a, a great house plant and conservatory plant grower. And even though she's a superb all round gardener, she's sort of rather made her name many years ago for her knowledge of house plants. And she travelled around the Caribbean with Channel Four many years ago um, and did a, a garden plant series. But of course, most of those plants would translate. Um, in, into the house and the other great house plant grower I also met was a, a girl and she's married now but her name was Lisa Williams and she was a nurse who I used to know and uh, she was in the nurse's home at uh, St Mary's in Paddington and all her house plants were fantastic and I think it was something to do with the temperatures there because the temperatures always seem to be cranked up in the nurse's home I suppose they were sort of used to their sort of temperate ward temperatures and so consequently there um, the nurse's home was at the same temperature and of course she was used to tending and caring and they became her pets and you know as it were and so she looked after them and it was that nurturing instinct that she um, she ended up doing brilliantly at her job and it was because she because she cared and she cared for her house plants and she cared for the people she worked with so they're, they're both of them were, were extremely good and, and accomplished houseplant growers but but the house plants are great because they are actually so you know so forgiving. But it, I do think it's important if you um, know where they come from. It's like the garden plants. If you know where they come from, then that really helps to position them in the house. Now people may recognise your voice, your dulcet tones from Gardener's Question Time, where you are a fixture um, <laughs> on the on the the wonderful institution of. BBC Radio 4, that is Gardener's Question Time. What's it like doing that show? And, and do you get many questions about houseplants? We, well, the first, first one, what we know, what's it like? It's, it, one thing is it's a massive honour. I always, every time I sit in one of the chairs, I feel it's a massive honour. And I, I don't, I mean, it's difficult to speak for other people, but I, I don't think that any of us sort of take it for granted. You do realise that it's part of a wonderful heritage uh, with great plants, people, um, and characters uh, that that have sat in those chairs and answered questions. So I think you do. I feel most certainly the it's not a heavy burden of history, history but you're aware of the history of it. Um, what's it like? I think a lot of more more people when they come to a recording, um, they're quite aware uh, of how funny it is. You know, they go oh. That's a surprise. You know, it's a, a real surprise how funny it is and how we get on as pals um, and it's gardeners having a chat and having an opinion. So even if there are, you know, disagreements, which people, you know, like because it's, you know, like a bit of a bit to be contentious, it's never uh, na- um, nasty. It's always, well, I've discovered this and I've discovered that. And there's plenty of leg pulling. So, so yeah, lots of fun, but also nerve wracking because you don't know the questions beforehand. And I think that's something that people don't realize. Uh, we do. We're not told the questions beforehand. They're selected by um 
Peter or, or Eric, whoever is the, the chairman of the day, um, they're selected on the spot. They're brought in by the um, ladies and gentlemen and the children who come to visit. Um, and uh, yeah, so any, who, any member of the audience can pop in a, a question um, and uh, they do so. And the first time we hear them, uh, is when they're read out. Well, I have to say, one of my one of my long on my long term bucket list is asking a question on Gardener's Question Time. I've achieved one of my other bucket Radio Four related bucket list items in that I was recently interviewed on You and Yours. <laughs> that was another one in ah, the bag. And years right. ago, I was on Woman's Hour talking about not about plants, but about um, when I was a when I was a real journalist talking about uh, a, an email scam. Funnily enough, so yeah, I, I'm, that's my next sort of Radio Four related bucket list is to get to a recording and ask her questions. I'm sure you will one day because the, the other lovely thing about Gardener's Question Time is that it's all you know around the British Isles and sometimes beyond. Um, so the chances of them ending up somewhere near where you live um, is extremely high. Well, I do high. know that one of the local allotment associations is putting in a request right now. So that, uh, that should hopefully result in a, a visit before long, uh, which would be wonderful. And, you know, I mean, the, I think that is, you're right, that is what makes it so fun, is the fact that you don't know the questions. And also, you know, I mean, there's so many great personalities on that panel. I mean, I love hearing Anne talk about houseplants, because obviously, that's my personal passion. But, you know, you've got, James Alexander, sorry, James Wong, James, I was about to say James Alexander Sinclair. I don't know where that popped out from. James Wong, um, you know, you've got a, a Bob, obviously Bob Flowerdew, who was in fact on my very first episode of On the Ledge talking about the Swiss cheese plant and its fruit. So it's a, it's a real delight to hear those different voices and different opinions coming together. Welcome back to the Potting Shed. It's now time for question of the week. And this week, Mary Beaton emailed with a question about her Phalaenopsis orchid. And she's a bit worried. She thinks that it might have some kind of fungus or problem because the edges of the leaves are turning a little bit red. She sent me some photos. I'll include one of those in the show notes so you can have a look. She said she can't see any sign of any pests, but she's still worried that there might be a problem with her orchid. So I took a close look at the photos and yes, the edges of the leaves on the top and bottom surface do seem to be rather reddish. And usually this is a sign that the plant is getting a little bit too much light. So Phalaenopsis generally like to be on a north or east facing window situation. This gives them the right amount of light. They don't like to be in blaring sunlight. Um, and if you have them on a windowsill in either of those settings, then they will get just about the right amount of light. West facing windowsills are okay, provided that they may be a little bit away from the actual window or they get a little bit of shade in the afternoon. 
south facing windowsills are really a no-no it's just too bright so i think that this redness is a response to too much light plants often do this when they are a little bit sunburnt they turn red the other reaction that some plants have including orchids is that the leaves can turn very pale and yellow so if you're seeing either of these symptoms in your orchid then do consider whether it's in the right spot for light but i don't think there's too much to worry about here mary Phalaenopsis are incredibly tough they really are and I don't think that this one is going to suffer too badly if you can just adjust the lighting position just a little bit and uh, move it somewhere slightly more shaded then I think your orchid will come back very strongly. I'm going to be doing a Phalaenopsis special in an upcoming episode because I'm going to visit Double H Orchids on the south coast of England and find out all of their orchid tips and information. So listen out for that Phalaenopsis episode coming soon. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, it's easy. Just drop me an email to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com and I will endeavour to help you. But now, back to Matt Biggs. We're going to be appearing on stage together, aren't we, at Gardener's World Live this uh, next month. In fact, it's coming up. It's coming up quickly now. I guess I should write my talk, finish writing my talk. I have done some work on it. This is exciting, though, because there's going to be a whole stage devoted to uh, interior uh, planting and floristry. What, tell me a bit more about what you've got going on at that stage other than other than me, <laughs> which is just one small part of it on one day. Yeah, well, we have uh, Jonathan Mosley coming along and he's a uh, great value for money. Um, he's a he's a wonderful florist. And uh, the other great thing about him is that he's actually a gardener, too. So when you talk to him, you're talking to a gardener florist and he's a wonderful character, t- totally charming, lots of fun and really good at his job and always full of ideas. And uh, I've had the pleasure and the privilege of working with him several times over the years. And he's he's such a joy to work with. He's got a lovely voice to listen to. So anybody who sits and listens to him uh, will, you know, he's very sort of easy on the ear, very entertaining, but also very informative. And he has this wonderful talent like, like hairdressers do of being able to chat to you about all sorts of things while you work while he works and so he can sort of split his mind well he split his mind into controlling his hands to make the you know to to put the uh, bouquets together or the displays together um he can you know ch- have the other part of his mind chatting to you and the other one almost thinking about what he's going to do next so it's an immense talent uh, but lightly carried and he's ve- he's just very entertaining um uh, then uh, I'm going to do a few uh, little chats about, you know, how to keep your house plants healthy. So I've got, uh, you know, we'll try and get some props on there so we can look as healthy. I won't be bringing any um, poorly house plants in, but it just is quite nice to have um, those uh, to, um, to 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 show. So we'll be chatting about those, um, and we have um, uh, Mr. Plant Geek coming on, Michael Perry. And so Michael's a, he's a house plant man. He's um, very experienced in that area. So he's going to be chatting the sort of weird and wacky side of house plants too. So we've got, we've got a, you know, a lot of variety. Uh, and I'm hoping also that we're going to perhaps join, the, you know, get, get a little bit of time for questions and answers. Uh, and we can answer the public's questions because people go to a flower show 
actually wanting their questions answered, funnily enough. They, that they come there, yes, to have a great day out and to buy some plants and to add to their own collections. But they're always looking, you know, is, this, is there somebody who could answer this um, problem I've got? Is there somebody who could help me here? And so I'm hoping to be able to sneak in some Q&As a bit as well. But the, I think the most important thing is that we show that it's fun. Uh, and, and people, you know, it, there is an element of experimentation. There always is with gardening. I think if you're a new gardener, you buy something, then you, you know, hopefully have got a location for it. It's very helpful to have done a bit of revision about the kind of plants that you're going to put in your house anyway, just to check that you've got the location or sort of say, look, I've got a steamy bathroom or a sunny window or a slightly drafty lounge or a shady corner. Um, and then to do some research beforehand um, and then to work out which plants suit, make your choice uh, and then see how they grow. But the actual growing of them is trial and error. And I think people should remember that and they shouldn't be. Uh, hard on themselves and it, you know it's not a really heavy scene if your plant dies you go well why has it died you know what have I done have I drowned it have I you know has it died has it died through lack of moisture has it died because it's not getting enough light is it faded away because of that so it's all experimentation and so long as you learn for you from your experiences that's what eventually makes you you know a good a good gardener and that's why a lot of the great gardeners either have a an instinct for it or, uh, you know, 500 years old. <laughs> and Matthew, tell, tell us what houseplants particularly fascinate you in terms of your own growing and collection. Is there a particular group or do you like to kind of mix it up and, and just whatever takes your fancy or is there a particular group that really you dedicate yourself to? Well, one of the, one of the joys of horticulture and of growing plants wherever you're growing them is the variety it's such a broad church you know you go from bulbs to you know to giant trees and and you know annuals to perennials and uh, then you can go in different different climates from alpine to humid tropics so it's this great diversity uh, within a garden and i think within the house as well because all those or a lot of those climates are are there but I've always I've been privileged, as I mentioned early on, to go to the tropics. Uh, and I love the colour. I love the, so the architecture of the plants, the lushness of the growth. Uh, I love the warmth um, and the sunshine and all those things that we, we don't get with any great consistency um, in Britain um, and other parts of Europe. So I just buy plants almost that take, take my fancy, as it were, and... Uh, uh, and grow them that way. So I do like the architectural, but you know, st st you still can't beat a, a really well-grown Monstra Deliciosa, the cheese plant, or, you know, the fantastic Epipremnemorium, the Devil's Ivy, which, you know, will grow in the darkest of dark places. And, and there are some uh, really beautiful Aspidistras, for example, that are great for very sort of dull, you know, very dark corners, That's hence the Victorians liking them. And I think if anybody is wanting to, to buy houseplants, you know, if you can find a good local supplier and there are specialist cacti shops and I'm very fortunate that uh, my local garden centre has a, a, a stunning display of houseplants and they have done for years, interestingly. You know, you go in there and it's full of primarily these days um, uh, windowsill orchids and uh, lots of good old streptocarpus, but the interesting cacti, um, and succulents too. So I think the ability to be able to choose and to buy and to experiment 
uh, is you know is part of the fun, part part of the deal. Uh, also worth looking out for if you're buying. Um, you mentioned uh, Chelsea, Jane. Um, Krug Farm Plants has a really interesting collection of aspidistras. Really interesting. Well, it's- it's funny you should say that, uh, Matthew, because uh, when by the time people are listening to this, they will have heard in last Friday's episode my interview with Robbie Blackhall Miles, who is uh, was until uh, a few months ago uh, worked at Krug Farm. My interview with Robbie about the aspidistras on that very stand. Well, so there you, you go. Are, you two, are. <laughs> two plugs in you've two read weeks. my mind. You've yeah, read my was- mind. There was a great, uh, another great plant uh, collector called Mikinori Ogisu. Um, and in fact, there is because he's still still around and he's still collecting. So uh, Mikinori Ogisu, the great plant collector, he several years ago collected a lot of very interesting aspidistras. And of course, the aspidistra is great because you've got, you know, the architectural foliage, but there's all sorts of sort of blotches and stripes and mottling uh, and different shaped leaves and forms. So. You know, that that's really sort of opened everything up. And of course, if you live uh, in a city or have a sheltered garden, the Aspidistra can also go outside um, and be planted somewhere shady under a shrub uh, and can be an outdoor plant, too. Hence Krug Farm selling them. So so it is also quite interesting to to put your house plants in the summer, uh, put them outdoors in the summer and bring them in during the uh, win- winter or as the obviously they've got to come in before the first frost so as the temperatures start to drop you move them in and i don't think you can ever move them in too early but it's very easy to move them in when it's too late um so they don't like their frost uh, but they do um one year i i i made some well i thought they were quite successful displays you, you know grouping house plants together and of course in the house they make more impact grouped together and they grow better grouped together because of the increased humidity for most of the tropical and temperate plants. So I think if you can make, you know, if you can think of the versatility of house plants, you get a really good deal out of them. You certainly do. They certainly last a lot longer than the average bunch of flowers. You get some several months, even if they do die, then you've had months of, of enjoyment out of them, which is uh, which is not a bad deal. Uh, what, what I think is really important for people to remember is that flowers in the house, whether they're cut flowers, and there is a campaign to buy, and you'll hear this from Jonathan Mosley if you go go to Gardeners World Live. But there is a campaign to support British growers, and that was very evident at Chelsea as well. And there are a lot of British growers of cut flowers, um, of bulbs. Uh, there was a lovely display at Chelsea called Flowers from the Farm. And uh, that, that, I think, if I remember right, it was around 500 small growers, uh, people growing cut flowers on allotments in small farms, small holdings, uh, to supply cut flowers for the house, for bouquets, for posies. And I just think if you, you know, there's always a chance to bring flower into your house. And I think that's really important. We should support our own uh, industry and just a, a little vase of flowers. If you've got lots of architectural house plants, the architecture is there, but it's also nice to bring the colour in too. So, so I do feel that growing plants um, inside your house should encompass cut flowers as well as house plants. 
I, I totally agree. I'm always bringing stuff in from the garden and trying to support local uh, flower growers because, as you say, it just adds a certain something, doesn't it? But I'm also a champion of the flowering houseplants as well, which I still think is, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I still think there is room for a revolution with our flowering houseplants because, and that this could be the next big thing. Uh, we've, we're all into the, the big, bold foliage, but actually there's so many amazing flowering houseplants too yeah absolutely um there are and you know we mentioned the streptocarpus and uh you know they are stunning and flower over you know flower over a long period there's a fabulous range of flowers uh, within those uh you can go for things you know even like you, you can double bubble with the um, you know aphalandra squarosa um uh that that sort that's always good uh you know, great for a warm humid spot and produces nice bright yellow flowers or you know, something like Euphorbia milii, very, very spiky, very, very spiny. So it needs to be sort of kept out, you know, out of the way of um, passing traffic, but still great uh, for perhaps a spot in the corner of a conservatory or in a corner of the room with those fat, fabulous bracts that range from, I've seen them in mustard yellow right through to sort of bright pink. And then you've got the traditional things like, you know, cacti. Uh, people uh, what often forget that cacti flower they need a, a cool dry winter rest and they need to obviously reach a stage of maturity too uh, and feeding with high potash fertilizer during the growing period and that encourages the flower flowering and cacti and flower are absolutely astonishing for the range of really vivid absolutely gorgeous colors from sort of reds and cerises to you know bright pink, pinks and oranges all the flower colors are they're really funky and if you get them flowering you know that that's great too gloxinias you know gloxinia is a wonderful old traditional house plant uh, my my dad always used to buy one of those in the spring for my mother and of course they have gorgeous flowers you know um the deep rich color really rich uh vi you know vibrant reds and blues very regal plants so there's you know there's lots of small house plants don't take up a lot of space doesn't need to be you know something that's sort of massively doesn't need you know take up the space of a palm but but can just be sat on a tiny tiny window selling flower and even little tiny plants like you know lithops i've had my lithops in flower recently you know they're a little fun plant for children um i used to have a tray well i, I still have actually i've got a tray of lithops in the toilet but nobody gets the schoolboy joke so it's, so it's sort of hardly worth having, but it made, 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 made me chuckle when I did it because, of course, they all look like bottoms. Um, but uh, they, they will they will flower too. So I think you've got you know lots of variety, um, and of, of course you've got you know the uh, uh, the phalaenopsis and the you know the cymbidiums, the, the wonderful orchids. And I think it's a shame in a way that we draw, um, you know the windowsill orchid has sort of taken over. Of course it has. It's fantastic. You know, they're, uh, they're, they're wonderful plants. Um, but, uh, you know, there are, uh, and they flower for months and months. You know, as you know, Jane, you know, once you finish, they finish flowering, you don't cut the flowering spike off, but you just work your way down, taking full advantage of of the, uh, the, the bud below, which will then uh, sprout and produce another set of flowers. So I think there's, there's lots and lots of uh, of interest, and of course, if you you know if you make yourself a terrarium uh, as well, that uh, that uh, creates a change of habitat and becomes you know a source of fun. Uh, and I know, I know that you can get the old bottled terrarium still, and 
but but it, one of the easiest and most straightforward ways to make a nice little landscape is to is to use an old an old rectangular fish tank or even a new one um, and, and pop that in and I think you see your plants very well there and if you really get into it of course you can make yourself a um, a terrarium out of a you know out of a windowsill um, and have glass panels in front of it and really you know really go to town but I just think there's so, there's so many options for you know look at this. Look at the space that you've got. Check what the climate's that like there. Do a bit of research on the kind of plant, um, and get you know one plant, two plants, perhaps fit you know three, three or four plants together. Because I think a display, um, you know, is always more impactful uh, than just having single plants together. Yeah, I agree. And just on the gloxinias, I always think they're sort of the Dame Barbara Cartland of the houseplant world. They're just so ridiculously over the top and deliciously so. Uh, I think that's another, as you say, that's another one that used to be really quite popular, but isn't so much uh, around these days. I think we need to definitely bring back the gloxinia. Uh, I'm sure that's a, that's a bridge too far for some people. But I remember when people were saying the same thing about dahlias. Oh, we're never going to grow dahlias again because they're too OTT. And now, obviously, everyone's growing dahlias i also love euphorbia milii that's one of the plants that i had as a teenager that i that i i really enjoyed having i haven't got i don't know what happened to that plant i don't have one anymore uh i think i probably steered clear of it because of imagining my children encountering the spikes and just not being able to resist giving it a good poke and then paying well, for they, it but uh, well they would they would only do it once don't they i mean i think it's like well when, true when people you know if you put you should put them out of the way obviously you're not don't want to risk anyone but it's curious fingers and i think that's it's a little bit like it's it's how people learn about danger and safety i think in a way so as long as they don't hurt themselves too much you'd only have to rest your finger on it slightly i think we've all done it and we've all survived but I, I just think it's, um, you know, you have to take care, but you can't cushion people, sadly, from all well, the, no. the pr prickles Agreed. in life. And if once they get out to be in the garden, <laughs> they'll find roses have got prickles and, you know, pyrocanthus. And they will have learned already just that, that uh, just even a light uh, little finger um, on, a, on, a, on a spine is, is uh, enough to hurt. So watch out and you know, avoid them at all costs, which is, of course, what the plant wants you to do. Exactly. I, well, I wrote a piece for The Guardian um, about Chelsea and, and re recommending some of the euphorbias that were growing. And somebody in the comments criticised me for recommending euphorbias because the sap burns the skin. Well, and... I, 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 I read, I, funnily enough, I read that this morning and I read the comments and the comments were really interesting. And I have I have to say, um, you know, there, a lot of the comments were obviously by people who aren't gardeners and who don't understand who don't understand it and uh, and just want to voice an opinion exactly and that's the the funny thing about writing for the guardian is obviously there's it's you know it's on the front page of the website some people are clicking through and um and they're not really interested in gardening. They just want to make a controversial comment. And it's absolutely fine. And, I, and just like Gardener's Question Time, the great thing is I love having a great discussion with another gardener about something and disagreeing over something because um, that's part of the fun. And But you just don't take it too personally. But it did make me laugh because I thought, gosh, if you don't want to have euphorbias, whether they be houseplants or in the garden because of the sap being toxic, then you'd be very, very limited in terms of houseplants and garden plants if you avoided anything that was toxic. Because, gosh, aren't there so many things that could harm you? I, I think there are some there are some when it comes to poisonous plants. There are some like the euphorbias and, you know, 
you should be aware of it. Um, and there were several instances in the comments there where people had suffered, and I've had, you know, True. suffered, and I've, you know, uh, but but you therefore, um, you know, take the necessary precautions. You don't, you know, you take care when pruning. You know, you make sure you don't get the sap on your skin. You know. You don't you don't run away from everything that frightens you. You learn to control it and you learn, you know, how to avoid the problems. And I think you're absolutely right with, you know, poisonous plants. You know, pretty well, well it's not pretty well everything in the garden is poisonous is perhaps a little bit sort of over the top. But there are, as you say, many plants. But you, uh, you know, if they've got spines or prickles or toxic sap or whatever it is, well, you know, you teach your children not to eat berries or you plant the plant with berries at the back of the border where they can't get to it. You don't put a spiny plant right by a path where people are going to scratch themselves on the way through. You know, you move it uh, into the back of the border so it's not going to be in close proximity to, to little hands. You know, your um, euphorbia milii can go somewhere where, you know, the child can't reach it, but they might reach it when they're 10 or 12, in which case they should know what spines are and they should, you know, that they should be, they will have learned by then uh, that spines hurt. So I think, you know, all you do have to um, make people aware and you they do have to know uh, that plants like, you know, rue can cause phytosensitivity and that euphorbia sap can be damaging. You have to be make them aware of that. But once they're aware, then they should, you know, react accordingly. And I think, you know, there is a lot of, um, you know, of overreaction to uh, poisonous plants. It shouldn't, should never stop you. You think about all the good in growing plants, you know, it should never stop you. And it's just, it's just a typical, you know, these, these days we're extremely good at polarized opinions, extreme left, extreme right, extreme, you shouldn't have this. You know, the the answer is, is you know, we, we should we should be tolerant of all kinds of, you know, people, places, plants, attitudes, really. I totally agree. Let me tell you a bit of a story, though, about what I, a mistake I made. And I thought I was being so clever. So I had a cactus that, for, for reasons I now can't remember, died and it was incredibly spiky. And I thought, aha, I have a cunning plan. I'm going to put this. I've got two big two by two meter raised beds at the back of my garden, which is mainly planted up with perennial vegetables. And I have problems with cats deciding to but particular times of the year when there's more bare soil coming to sort of do their business in there. So I thought I'm going to have a clever idea here. I'm going to put this deceased cactus on this bed as a little spiny discouragement to the cats to oh, remind, uh, remind to... me never to cross you <laughs> i know how mean anyway so um i mean normally i put down strings of holly or branches and things but i just thought aha this is going to work brilliantly but i i got uh the cactus bit back in that it slowly decomposed and I didn't really notice that but slowly it decomposed and it got kind of half buried and then when I, when I was going to do some maintenance on this bed I put my foot with my my was wearing crocs at the time put my foot with, with my crocs on it Ooh. in uh, and then I ended up with many spines in the bottom of my crock coming through into my bare foot. So that was my lesson about why dead cacti do not make good cat deterrence. Well, uh, all, all I can yeah. say is it serves you right. It do, It really does. It really does. Yeah, that was it does. a lesson I mean, it, is, it is, 
you know, and I, I think, you know, and, and that, but that is, you know, in all being serious, being more serious now, that, that's about learning from experience, isn't it? And, you know, you mentioned your dead cacti. Well, you know, now your cacti don't die. But but some sometimes it's the only way you learn. But I think if you if you have got you know plants that you're sort of a little bit uncertain of, you know, and 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 they sort of suit the style, like their growth habit, their growth habit, sorry, is um uh, is suitable. Then uh, hanging baskets are very useful because it sort of keeps everything well out of the way, you know. And then put mm, a hanging basket yeah. in a you know in a corner of a room, um, so it's not within the area that you that you walk. Um, then, then it's absolutely fine. So it's all this, all the time thinking, right, this is the plant. Where does it grow well? If it's got spines, that's absolutely fine. If it you know, needs a massive amount of space to grow, you know, like, like a, a monstra, um, if you've got, you know, a calathea or, or something like that with, you know, big, attractive, variegated leaves, then that'll need a fair amount of space. So think about sort of the ultimate height and the best kind of location, bearing in mind safety, the need, the growth needs of the plant, um, and the the actual space that it's going to take up. So a bit of bit of planning. But of course, you know what do, what happens, Jane, because you've done this. You go to the garden centre and you go, oh, that looks nice. I'll have that. Oh, and that too. And you come home with a with a whole basket full of house plants, and uh, then you go. Uh, right, where am I? Where am I going to put them all? Oh, that's too big. That's not going to fit there. That oh, look at the pot over. Well, the habitat's right, but the pot overlaps the windowsill. Um, so, so you do if you can sort of control your urges to buy and be sort of measured about it. It does pay in the long run. You're absolutely right. Although, had the number of people who've come up to me and said it's all your fault that I've ended up with this houseplant obsession and I've got too many houseplants, so yes, I, I I hear you, but I suspect that many of us are unable to exercise that kind of self control. But it's it's a very wise advice because if you end up with the too many houseplants in the wrong places, then it can all go horribly wrong. But hopefully, when we're at Gardeners World Live, we can answer lot as you say answer lots of people's queries and get people on the right track with their house plants so i'm really looking forward to to seeing you in june matthew and thanks so much for the chat today i've learned loads well thank you very much indeed for asking me talking about house plants always enjoy it Thanks so much to Matt Biggs for joining me on the show this week. It's been a pleasure and I hope you've enjoyed this little series of interludes from the potting shed, including the delightful pigeon uh, incident. I will be putting full details of Matt's website and some of his books on my show notes at janeperone.com where you'll also find information about Gardeners World Live and other events that I'm appearing at this summer including the Hampton Court Palace Flower Show. It's going to be an exciting summer so I hope that I can meet you in person at some of those events. I'm going to try to get an on the ledge t-shirt made up so I should be very easy to spot. got to go. I've got some Haworthias that desperately need potting up. More about those in a future episode. Oh, I'm giving you all the teasers this week, aren't I? But have a great planty week and I shall see you next Friday for more houseplant fun. Bye! Bye!